Attention, please. Attention, please. Radio Wareham announces the start of its feature, Ireland Takes Wing, by Norris Davidson, produced by Seamus Brannock. Will all listeners wishing to hear this kindly remain seated until the end of the feature? Thank you. As a merchant shipping line has its house flag, so an airline wears a symbol that belongs to it alone. Without consciously learning them, we're familiar with many of them today. The seahorse of Air France, the shield of Sabena, Lufthansa's stork, KLM's crowned wing, the flying key of BEA, the winged arrow of Alitalia, and the shamrock that, flying on an airport flagstaff or painted on an aircraft, represents Aer Lingus Tjornta, which began modestly 21 years ago. This badge flies overseas and frontiers. Edinburgh, Glasgow, the English Midlands and London know it. It reaches out across the Pyrenees to Barcelona. Atención, Air Lingus anuncia la llegada del vuelo 221 procedente de Dublín y Lourdes. The Aer Lingus colors cross Normandy to Paris. Attention, s'il vous plaît. Aer Lingus annonce l'arrivée du vol numéro 522 de Dublin. Rome is linked to Dublin. Attenzione, attenzione. È in arrivo l'aereo 670-670 della Aer Lingus a Dublino. Dublin is linked to Germany. Achtung, Achtung. Aer Lingus gibt die Ankunft ihres Fluges numero 640 von Dublin, Manchester und Brüssel. Gently losing height, the Irish wings whistle across the great Dutch Nordsee Canal and throw their shadows on the ancient houses and meticulously shaped fields of Holland. Scotland, England, Holland, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man, Ireland wings to all of them from Dublin Airport. Dublin Airport looking down on the concourse with its shops and departmental counters and its passengers. The passengers, who are they? Millions of passengers have passed through Dublin Airport in its 15 years. Mostly they come and go as unconcernedly as in any other airport in the world. But of course, there are distinct types among these passengers, such as this one. Oh, flying. Oh, it's no more thrilling for me. I've done too much. I wouldn't mind having a fiver for every thousand miles I've flown. Soon mounts up, you know. Yes, I just go to sleep or write letters. I'll tell you this, old boy, you mayn't believe it, but this is positive fact. I promise you it's true. I often don't know where I am when I wake up in the morning. I lie there with my eyes shut and I say to myself, now, now where did you fly to yesterday? Am I in Lisbon about that contract or in Copenhagen with old so-and-so? Fact, and I do not know until I open my eyes, or maybe not even then. Not until I hear someone speaking, waiter with my breakfast or something. Uh, yes, I'm afraid all the thrill has gone out of flying for me. It's, it's just a matter of... Oh, oh, that's my call. Oh, well, thanks very much. <laughs> yes, perhaps I, I will have another brandy. A large one. The stomach's a little, uh, little bit... Uh... And there's this sort of passenger. I, c- 
can't make it out. I simply can't make it out. How could I possibly have taken a ticket for the wrong day? There must be a flight to Jersey this evening. Now, are you absolutely positive there's no flight until tomorrow? Yes, of course, you said you were, but I can't make it out. Obviously, I must have booked for the wrong day, but that's what's so extraordinary. I never make mistakes like that. I was convinced that the day was the 21st. Convinced. Of course, my ticket is for the 21st. <laughs> Coming along in the car, my friend said today was only the 20th, but she's so muddle-headed, you know. And now it turns out that today is the 20th. I don't know what to do. It looks so silly going back to it again, but I can't sleep. Sometimes a fighter pilot condescends to ordinary air travel. May I go up to the town and watch the aeroplanes? When do we take off? Well, when will it be a quarter past? Will I be let sit with the captain? Can I have a coat, please? And there are the passengers who are convinced that no one knows they haven't been travelling together for so very long. Darling, we will put What? I simply can't hear. Brush off the confetti. Good God, where? Hat. So they come, day and night, all through the year. So they go. That's air travel today. Every aircraft is a miracle of science and imagination, placed in the hands of pilots who must observe the strictest safety requirements. The course is predetermined, the height fixed on the weather evidence and pressure systems it reveals. Soon, that aircraft will be invisible, flying over the clouds, but linked to and controlled by radio stations on land, passed from one to another like a train from signal cabin to signal cabin. Put on these headphones and hear it happen. Dublin Centre, Erlinga Seca Foxwich Yankee is now at 21.5 and checks 52.30 north. Over. All right, you're Foxwich Yankee, understand by 52.30 north. At 3-5, you're going to contact London Airways now on 121 decimal 3, the Lundy QNH 1014. Good day. Dr. Janky understands Lundy 1014. Good afternoon. Meaningless to us, an almost coded interchange of voices. But it meant that the aircraft had sought for and been given permission to change to the radio frequency of the next station and pass from the control of Dublin to the next control. Down below that aircraft is what was once the barrier. Down below it is the sea that had to be crossed in the early days of the story of how Ireland was air-linked with the rest of the world. But before then, flight of one kind and another was known in Ireland. Ireland had known the balloonists. Almost at the same period as in England, there had been ceremonial ascents in Dublin. And later on, those bravest of the brave who allowed themselves to drift from one island to another, suspended in ornamental wicker baskets were largely successful in their efforts and dropped their grapnels to the applause of philosophers and other enlightened persons and the general wonderment of the plain people. But powered flight was a long way off and the present principle of wings had little study until the early experiments of Professor George Fitzgerald in the College Park of Trinity. 
you can still see him in photographs, standing frock-coated and top-hatted in his bird-like framework. A team of young men would tow him into the air, much as gliders are launched today. The professor would fly. He said so himself in the public prints. But he never did. And if a success could have been effectually ill-wished, then Dublin would have had the distinction of bringing his efforts to nothing. Dublin could accept the idea of pulling a kite into the air, but a kite with a man in it, and someone that everyone knew, one of ourselves. That was different. That is a Dublin attitude of mine that persists to this day, to sneer, to confound the unlikely with the impossible, to laugh at sincere and noble aspirations, because how, in the name of God, could we ever hope to achieve anything as outlandish as flight? The attitude of mind that drove George Bernard Shaw out of the country. Professor Fitzgerald never flew. But some of the team of men who pulled his contraption of wings are alive to sea flight as we know it today. He experimented with the aeroplane, following the work of Otto Lilienthal, the great German father of gliding, who was eventually killed in the Hartz Mountains. The rights of Kitty Hawk had made powered flight a reality. Even the great pioneering attempts that followed are often forgotten, but the rights are remembered, and someone else with them. Evening paper, Bleriot flies the channel. Evening paper, channel flown by Bleriot. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Very Frenchman flies the channel. Evening paper, evening paper, sir. The day after Blériot flew the English Channel, Lathon fell into it when attempting the same flight and had nine stitches put into his head in Dover by a doctor who had been one of Professor Fitzgerald's towing team. In those days, if you could get up into the air and successfully control your descent, you could land in a field that would be far too small for the smallest aircraft of today. But the great thing was to get up and then hope for the best. Flying along roads and railway lines... By Bradshaw, it was called, from point to point. With the English Channel conquered, the Irish Sea became the next objective. If you look about you in Shannon Airport, you'll see an old enlargement of Robert Lorraine and an aircraft. He was a musical comedy actor, well known into the 20s, who, in his young days, took off from Hollyhead in an attempt to fly the 53 miles to Ireland and failed bravely when he fell into the sea off the Bailey Lighthouse. A party of cyclists watching from the Hill of Hoth later formed themselves into a famous group, the Lorraine Cycling Club. And have you seen this in a bar in Kilcullen, County Kildare? It's the hub of a wooden laminated propeller. The blades have been snapped off, but not in any fatal accident, just the result of running out of a field after landing. On it is this inscription. The propeller of the first aeroplane to fly from England to Ireland on the 22nd of April, 1912. The machine, a Blerio, piloted by Mr William Corbett Wilson of County Kilkenny, flew from Fishguard to Crane near Enniscorthy. It was slightly damaged on landing. Mr Corbett Wilson was afterwards shot down in the Royal Flying Corps in World War I. 
the German army announced that the funeral was with full military honours. It was this World War I that really made Ireland familiar with the sight of aircraft. Previous to it, there had only been one or two air meetings. The mail boat had an observation balloon for anti-submarine protection. A dirigible visited Bangor every day from Scotland. There was an aircraft exhibition at the corner of Earlsford Terrace, where there is now a garage. Boys looked up from motor cars and engines and became aircraft spotters. You're wrong, you're wrong. You don't know anything about it. That's not what an aerodrome's for at all. An aerodrome's a thing for aeroplanes to come down on. It isn't, you fool. It's a big thing as big as in a zeppelin for aeroplanes to land on top of. And it flies on with them to save petrol. I read it in a book, and my father said so too. And he knows. Even during the First World War, men were thinking of transatlantic flight. Such a thing had been considered before the war. But now necessity had hurried on the development of powered flight and endurance and carrying capacity was now the problem. In a prisoner of war camp in Germany, Arthur Witten Bryden, an American Scottish officer of the Royal Flying Corps, was studying the astral navigation necessary for such a flight. And other men of other nations were also sending their thoughts across the Atlantic over the routes they hoped one day to follow. But just as important as the mechanical developments that had to be made was the problem of the weather. The pioneers had to prove that the Atlantic air link was possible, and to prove it unaided by weather forecasts that were successful guesses at the best. Unlike today's forecast that are the result of sifting the barometric, wind and visibility reports from thousands of trained observers on land, in the air and in weather ships. Fishermen at sea could take precautions. I think we'll haul the trawl and look for shelter before this gets worse. Aye, grass is still falling. We might lose the gear altogether if we hang on. Run for cargo holes, eh? Captains of liners could handle their ships so that bad weather had least effect. Guess we'll have to heave her too, Mr. Mead. Heave too for a few hours, eh? We'll make things easier for the passengers. Break everything in the saloons if we don't. But there was no shelter for an aircraft caught in an unpredicted storm. Those pioneers were unable to fix their positions from surface radio stations. They depended on every pint of petrol they could carry, flying petrol tanks rather than passenger aircraft. Their instruments, compared with the instruments of today, scarcely existed. There was no rescue service. In many cases, these pioneers had no known graves perhaps just a momentary oil stain on the sea to mark the end of a courageous attempt. All the pioneers had was courage. Courage and the ability to turn hard-won experience to account, but mainly courage. Out of such weather came on the 15th of July, 1919, 
flying from Newfoundland on the first direct crossing of the Atlantic, the airmen, Allcock and Brown, in their Vickers bomber, low in petrol, utterly exhausted. Graham Wallace, in his book, The Flight of Allcock and Brown, tells how they passed over the wireless station at Clifton and then decided to land on what they took to be a big stretch of green grass. He cut both engines and levelled the Vimy into a smooth glide down towards that tempting stretch of green. The wind whistled softly through the wires, on towards the grass that looked deliciously smooth after their nightmare journey. Now they were close enough to the ground to be able to distinguish details. Pleasure changed swiftly to horror as the green sward became resolved into tufts of marsh grasses and pools of slimy water. There was no time to act. The wheels of the undercarriage ran into the watery mire, sending up a shower of muck. For a few seconds, their momentum carried them along before the Vimy came to a sudden stop. The nose dug into the soft ground, and the tail jerked skywards. They had flown across the Atlantic non-stop, a distance of 1,890 miles, in 15 hours and 57 minutes, at an average speed of... 118 miles an hour. That's the only way to cross the Atlantic, said Brown. At once, Ireland came into the transatlantic plans and its green fields looked welcome to Lindbergh when he confirmed his position by them on his west-east solo flight to Paris in the spirit of St. Louis. But nine years were to elapse before the Atlantic was flown from east to west, against the prevailing wind, that is. It was flown from an island that had taken the first step towards complete freedom by establishing a new state. And it was from Baldonnel Military Aerodrome that this flight was made. Baldonnel, the headquarters of the Irish Army Air Corps, and, when all is remembered, the nursery of Irish flying. Morning colours routine. The mountains look down on the flat plain of Baldonnel Aerodrome, on the guard and on the officer hoisting the flag. These uniforms would look strange to our eyes today. Leggings, breeches, different equipment, different rifles and bayonets, and a different shape of steel helmet. But they're the uniforms worn 35 and more years ago when the new National Army was formed. In this new army was a small air corps, and among those pilots of the twenties was Colonel James Fitzmaurice, who, with the German aviators Baron von Hunfeldt and Captain Köhl, made the first east-west crossing of the Atlantic in the aircraft Bremen. Serving at Baldonnel then, and working now for Aer Lingus as chief maintenance engineer, was John Maher, who describes the takeoff. After a couple of days uh, looking around the place, it was decided that the best place, in order to give uh, hard enough sufficient hard standing for the aircraft to start rolling, it was decided to take off between number two and three hangars, which mm-hmm. consisted, which gave them about four hundred feet of tarmac yes. to run before they hit the grass. Now the actual runway was marked off with uh, tires painted white and uh, oil drums at certain intervals marked t- 
to, to let them know exactly how much ground yes. covered they had covered. They, um, everybody was alert on the camp that morning. There were hundreds of reporters and photographers. And, and uh, the aircraft finally took off at half past five. Half past five in the morning. In the morning. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it just barely, I mean, it, it went, there was no sign of it leaving the ground. And uh, eventually it did leave the ground, but it, it dropped back on the ground. And the cause of this was that uh, the airplane had to be lifted. A sheep just ran across the, the runway yes. and the aircraft had to be lifted over. And soon lifted over, she went back mm. on the ground. She just cleared the hedges. And prior to this, um, as a precaution, at the end of the aerodrome, and in order to give another 300 feet or 400 feet, a stone wall was knocked down. Mm. And only the stone wall had been knocked down, it would have never... Never cleared they it. never cleared it. Then, when news came that they had landed, but not actually on the American mainland, the disappointed mechanics made this comment. Langrish, who is a very serious type of man, says, Johnny, he says, why not America? He said, the aircraft is good, I worked on it. The engine was good, he worked on it. There was no question about that. He'd worked on the aircraft, he'd worked on the engine. They were good. There was no question about anything failing there. But whether good... Pilots good, why not America? A year later, the Atlantic was crossed again from east to west by Kingswood Smith, with another Irishman, Captain Saul, as his navigator. Then Amelia Earhart landed at Derry, and other people began to consider the country as a useful point of departure. But Ireland was really only a sort of aircraft carrier in the East Atlantic for landing on and taking off. And the Irish government, having noted all this, and assisted in much of it, decided to move into the company of the flying nations. The Air Navigation and Transport Act of 1936 was prepared. An act to make further and better provision in relation to the regulation of air navigation and transport and to provide for other matters connected therewith. Be it enacted by the Oroctus of Sersthot Aaron as follows. Aircraft were chartered and scheduled flights to England were announced by the new company, Irish Sea Airways, soon to become Aer Lingus. Baldonnell Aerodrome was chosen as the takeoff point, and on the field used by the Bremen, a small party assembled to see Uller, an eight-seater de Havilland 84, begin the service to Bristol on the 26th of May, 1936. The station staff was Captain J.J. Hurley, superintendent, Mr. M.J. Finnegan, assistant station superintendent, Mr. A. E. Rafter, booking agent, and Mr. M. C. Hayes, customs officer. The newspapers did not make much of the occasion. The Irish Times said, Air services from Dublin to Bristol and Liverpool will be inaugurated today, and Mr. Sean Lamass, Minister for Industry and Commerce, will see the first machine leave Baldonnell Aerodrome for Bristol at nine o'clock this morning. The aeroplane will fly on a direct compass course from Baldonnell, and this should take it across the Irish coast between Dorky and Bray. Flying at a height of 4,000 feet, it will cross the Welsh mountains and pass north of Cardiff on its way to Whitchurch, the airport of Bristol. The same newspaper published this report on the take-off. Within a few moments, the passengers were weighed by the station staff and boarded the machine. A Dublin man, Mr O. E. Armstrong, piloted the machine, and as soon as it was in the air, Mr Lamass with Mr Sean O'Hui, chairman of Aer Lingus, and Mr J. Flynn, government representative of the Aer Lingus board, paid a visit to the new aircraft radio station on the aerodrome, where he heard messages being exchanged between Mr Armstrong and the operators. No paper said more, and even though it's only 21 years ago, 
The account reads something like a report from the days of the intrepid aeronaut of the last century, where he heard messages being exchanged between Mr Armstrong and the operators. No one devoted a leading article to it. The maiden voyage of the Queen Mary, Mussolini and Abyssinia, the Pula Fuca scheme, and, of course, Gaelic drama, held the headlines. But the fanfare doesn't always bear a relation to the importance of the occasion. Public support for the Bristol, Liverpool, and later on the London services didn't come by any means quickly, and an amusing and uninhibited advertising campaign began, written in a style that today's company, sound in reputation and great with experience, could never permit. The children will never forgive you, madam, if you don't give them the real educational treat of studying Dublin and its surroundings from a modern luxury airliner. Over the ditch. It used to be a sea, but aviation has reduced it to just a ditch for Irish Sea Airways. Spread your wings and fly. Fly to the Dublin Horse Show in two and a half hours. It's just plain horse sense to fly. Just up and over. It's as simple as that if you travel by Irish Sea Airways. It's 2.30 now, so I could meet you in London for tea. What? Yes, of course. I'll fly over by Irish Sea Airways. Breakfast in Dublin, lunch in London, tea in Dublin. is an easy day if you go by Irish Sea Airways. I wish Daddy would fly, because then Daddy wouldn't be coming home all tied out and would have lots more time to help me with my homework and Mummy wouldn't have to be worrying about his colds. In those days, 21 years ago, the names of air travellers, like the names of those who travel by the mailboat or to Liverpool, were published in the papers. At Baldonnell, we were checked and weighed in a concrete house to which we were brought in a single-decker bus. If it was raining on the return journey, we were sometimes taxied humanely right into the hangar where the bus was waiting for us, something that wouldn't be possible today. We flew to or from Croydon, an old and historic airport even then, with permanent station buildings and a vestibule in which we could see a weather picture drawn in coloured chalks on a blackboard. Sometimes it was a rather disconcerting picture to see, but at least it meant that depressions were being tracked and located. There was a certain amount of fixing position by radio and a certain amount of communication with the ground by a radio officer who sat in the cabin with the passengers. I also recall hearing something being said about an approach beam in 1938. One felt a hero and did a certain amount of blowing, like the advertisements. Well, I had lunch in London, and here I am in Dublin in time for sherry. But the interest of the government was not entirely devoted to short-range flying. The New York service was the coming thing, and the government sponsored the use of the sheltered inlet of Foynes for the pioneers who were trying to connect England, and incidentally Ireland, with America. The flying boat seemed to be the safest way of crossing the Atlantic, but taking off with such a heavy load of fuel was the great difficulty. One attempted solution was that the aircraft should take off with a light fuel load and receive the rest in the air from a sort of flying tanker. This was Sir Alan Cobham's project. Many will remember the short Mayo composite aircraft, one component of which helped the passenger-carrying aircraft to rise and then released it. One of the pilots based at Foynes in those early days was Captain Kelly Rogers, who flew the first air mail to the United States in 1939 and was later Sir Winston Churchill's pilot on many occasions during the war. He is now Deputy General Manager of Aer Lingus. 
the government set up meteorological and other services at Foynes, and transatlantic flights began. Foynes remained open throughout the war, but the war stopped the flights of the infant Aer Lingus. But this was only temporary, and in a couple of months flights were resumed, Liverpool being the terminal and later Manchester. Wartime travel was difficult. There were permits to obtain, space was limited, there were queues for everything, for customs, for trains and for food. The mailboat, the Liverpool boat, the Scotch boat and the fish guard boats were the traditional means of travelling and the new air service had made really very little impression until the coming of the war. Then, people who had never considered flying before began to use the air to avoid some of the difficulties of wartime travel. The aircraft were blacked out, only the pilot had a view, the timorous began to fly, and the old. My dear, I don't know why I didn't think of it years ago, except that there weren't any aeroplanes, were there? But I certainly never thought you'd see me in one at my age. The first flight I did was when Joan was going to have her baby in Andover, and I've flown over every year to see them since then. I, I just get in, sit down, close my eyes, and I'm there. The new airport that had been built at Collinstown, Dublin Airport, came into use in December 1940, and changes at Foynes followed. It had been proved that the land plane was a better aircraft for the Atlantic crossing, and on the other side of the estuary, what had been Rhinana Airport was developed into Shannon. Shannon Tower. This is Shannon Tower calling Clipper 59. Do you read over? Eastbound or westbound? Up to Iceland or down to the Azores, the airlines converge on Shannon and then fan out again after refuelling stops or a change of passengers who may take another route or spend the night in one of the airport hostels, which are made up of pleasant cabins, rather larger than a ship's cabin, and a comfortable lounge. Hostel 5. Hostel 5. Yes. It seems that the passenger carrying companies have each in their own way imposed a little of their individuality on the airport scene. It's busy without being fussy, it's efficient without any open signs of regimentation. It's an agreeable place in which to linger and watch and listen. Curlews call round the shallow flat depression of Renana. In summer, the corncrakes are undisturbed, and through the year, the hares bound about in coats that change with the seasons. The Shannon slips by to the sea, and in the bright afternoon sky, a solitary airliner comes in to land with such cautious deliberation that it seems to hang in the air like a hawk before stooping to the ground in a swift rush. No longer a bird, but half fish with its curving body, half menacing animal, wholly the work of man skimming across the calm landscape. But at night it's different. The tempo builds up, the runways are bordered in colours, beacons and markers show the way, and a revolving light flashes against the polished metal of aircraft. The air is alive with voices. Due traffic ahead, I repeat, due traffic ahead at the same altitude, at the same altitude. This is Ballygarine, Channel Air Radio, 
reaching all over the Atlantic, north and west and south. Statue cross 15 west at As the traffic gets heavier, the flights are brought down from their allotted heights like cards being dealt down from a pack. From longitude 30 west, a radio station in the airport takes over, and finally the control tower regulates the final approaches and takeoffs. Level 5 line, clear for takeoff, right turn out, climb on course. Surface wind 2 and 0 degrees magnetic at 10 knots. All right, clear for takeoff, right turn out, But there are other voices in the airport that speak clearly and not in a technical jargon. Ordering for BOAC crew. Two fillet steaks, one mixed grill, one a scallop of veal. Voices in the airport one kitchen. One lamb cutlets with some grilled kidneys and tomatoes. One special medium underdone steak for the captain. For Air France crew, two fillet steaks. Two vina schnitzel. Two cotagnons avec un peu de rognon. Two jambon foie. Now you hear the voices of the children of American servicemen playing cards. Best-known Swiss watches. Good. And what is the use of those watch with a little tire around it? Well, it's a key ring for your car. That's very good. Voices in the duty-free section, where Americans returning home and certain other travellers may purchase goods free of duty. What a lovely castle is that. Have you ever seen it? No. Flowney Castle, no, have I, you heard I, of I, it? I have not known. Never heard I, of it? Well, no, I am, I am a German. I do not know that. Well, no, uh, at least we hope it is. But I just come from from Germany. I. Well, everybody's heard of Where is it? I'd like to see what you have uh, in the way of something good as far as a cashmere sweater goes. Well, this is a very nice. It's a uh, Scotch cashmere drumland rig. It's very nice, fully fashioned. Twenty-one dollars. I also have. Uh, this style, the neckline, it's $18, so also 100%. This is the V-neck. The, the voice of an announcer trying to contact a passenger. Aer Lingus controls 90% of the passenger traffic here. Attention, please. Will Mr. Kramer, traveling from Amsterdam to Mexico City, who is to transfer a channel from KLM, the Royal Dutch Airlines, to Swiss Air, please check at the Aer Lingus general traffic counter.
ashadu anna muhammadur rasulullah hayya ala salat hayya ala falah kargamati salatu allahu akbar allahu akbar the voice of a minister of state of nigeria on his way to canada he's taken off his sandals and now he sits in the courtyard turned to the east for his evening prayers bowing his forehead to the ground the world meets in shannon airport malik yawmiddin iyyaka na'budu wa iyyaka nasta'in ihdinas siratal mustaqim siratal ladzina an'amta 'alaihim Shannon put Ireland on the global air map the number of airlines using it increased the passengers increased and Aer Lingus with a feeder service from Dublin to Shannon increased with them By 1945 the 1937 figure of 2687 had increased to 21630 in 1956-57 it was 458000 with 85000 in August alone as far back as 1940 the Douglas DC3 had been added to the small Aer Lingus fleet and from 1945 onwards it gradually replaced all the other aircraft This familiar this classic aircraft is known to most people as the Dakota. It is probably the last aircraft that will look like the original conception of an aeroplane, bird-shaped and graceful. Constantly improved, constantly modernized, it helped to build up Aer Lingus from a passenger convenience into an industry. Now it is going to give way to the Fokker friendship. In 1954 there was a new sound at the airport. There it is. Where? Look between us and the sea, right over those masts. Oh, isn't it lovely? Mind your backs, please. Do you mind? We want to get a picture. I can see the wheels going down. Wave at the airplane, darling. Wave. Ah, oh, good girl. She's waving. Please, please, we're taking a film. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's nearly landed. It's nearly landed. It's nearly landed. It's landed. I said it before you. The Vickers Viscount, powered by four 1400 horsepower Rolls-Royce engines and seating 53 passengers. Aer Lingus was the second airline in the world to adopt this aircraft. And when it began to come into service in other parts of the world, Aer Lingus pilots and engineers were frequently sent to give instruction in flying the Viscount. But such was the demand on the company that it had to place orders for the still newer Vickers aircraft, the Viscount 800, some of which are already in service. The Viscount immediately took over the Irish services to London, Paris, and Amsterdam, and made an all-round reduction in flight times. Again, the passenger figures rose. 
But Aer Lingus isn't only a line dealing with passenger transport. It's now integrated in the commercial life of the country almost as closely as the merchant shipping. All kinds of cargo are cleared through Dublin Airport. Delicate cargo, perishable cargo, urgent cargo, and, what always catches the public's imagination, sometimes an entire theatrical company with props and sets. It's a freight-carrying company. It's also a manufacturing company, for parts are manufactured under licence in the Aer Lingus workshops, for the Viscounts that Aer Lingus and other companies use, and these are flown from Dublin to Bristol. It's a mail-carrying company, flying the mails to Manchester for distribution everywhere. Such services can't be maintained without constant vigilance in flight and on the ground, and the engineering staffs keep the aircraft in perfect mechanical order by means of a system of regular checks, ranging from the checks before every takeoff to the complete parting and reassembly of an aircraft. Night and day this goes on, staff hands over to staff, and the hangars are never silent, not even in the small hours of the morning. Pressures have got to be done on both engines on this aircraft. Now that completes the check one. You can get let her out for a run, yeah. you see? Was there anything abnormal about the pressure dick when she came in? Uh, uh, no, sailing? nothing. It's just a normal check. Oh, is that nothing, all nothing abnormal. No snags on all. the pump or anything no like that? No snags on the pump at all. No, nothing Fair like enough, that yeah. at all. Just the normal Night check. gives way to morning, and the immense doors of the hangar slide open, not with, as one might imagine, a clashing of metal sections, but with a smooth hum. Out come the aircraft to the first flights, drawn stern first by small tractors, the only undignified position in which one sees these machines. And over there, below the hills, smiling in the early sunshine, is the place where it all started, Daldonnell. Here are the pilots of the Army Air Corps do their training, and this is the headquarters of the 1st Fighter Squadron. But the link between Baldonnen and Aer Lingus is more than purely historic, for the company now takes selected flying officers who've completed their short-service flying commissions and gone to the reserve, and trains them for civil aviation to supplement the present captains. Things have changed and developed enormously since the first Aer Lingus flights of 21 years ago. But there's one thing that will never change, the weather. Weather briefing is essential to even the shortest flight. But today, bad weather is flown over, flown round, flown under, avoided avoided by means of data collected from far and wide and presented by the meteorological officer. Mm-hmm. Well, once you're in the warm sector, from you'll be just stratified cloud and uh, the Paris terminal forecast is just giving warm sector conditions. The forecast at Le Bourget from 1500 to 1900 is giving 200 degrees 18 knots, six miles visibility, 7-8 Stratocue at 1,500 feet. Orle and Beauvais uh, will be much the same. I see it. Tell me, do the actuals substantiate that, that forecast, Ryan? They, they do. At the moment, Paris, the last actual we have from Paris at 1,400, is giving um, 
six-eighths that between 1,000 and 2,000 feet, seven miles. That weather briefing was for E-I-A-F-Y, or Foxtrot Yankee, to use her code name. To the passenger, she's Aer Lingus Viscount St. Brendan, and she's being prepared for flight 522 to Paris. The fueling tanker has moved up to where she stands on the apron, and her fuel requirements are checked. Have you the fuel load yet, Charlie? Yes, the fuel load is 1,400 gallons. Already we have 200 port and 200 starboard. So you give me 500 port and 500 starboard, and we check the fuel load then on the drip tubes. Right, hang on there. I'll, I'll get hold of the shell boats and give them the gen. Uh, don't forget to switch off as soon as you get anywhere near so that we can give a final check. Okay. Uh, how about the ISER? How, how are you off with the ISER? Oh, we want the ISER. Okay. Usual two and a quarter gallons for departure. Check. The pumps on the tanker rev up. And while the fuel is being pumped in, the cleaners complete their work in the aircraft. What's the instrument reading now, Charlie? We're reading now 700 port and 700 starboard. Okay, hang on there. I'll go down and check on the drip tubes. Okay. The ground engineer makes another check and returns. Drip tubes, 700 each, Charlie. Cross-check with the instruments. Okay? That's okay now. It's 1,400 gallons for departure. Okay. Uh, you sign the log, all right? I will, yes. Check. Meanwhile, in the cabin service department, Foxtrot Yankees, two hostesses, have reported for duty. Hello, operations. Mm. Rosalind McCarthy and Tess Harrington reporting for flight 522. Thank you. Before the cabin stores are put on board, the list is a long one. The hostesses check them. One ACO pad? Uh, yes. 14 magazine covers? Yes. Um, 48 glasses? Yes. 60 pink cups? Yes, 60. 60 trays? Yes. One glass jug? All right. Yes. Two sugar bowls? Yes. Four serving trays? Yes. 31 bottles of Irish? Yes, correct. 44 bottles of Scotch whisker. Correct. 40 bottles of gin? Yes. 28 bottles of brandy? Correct. 7 bottles of sherry? Yes. 12 cans of Guinness? Correct. 1,100 cigarettes? Irish landing cards? Yes. 60 French landing cards? Uh, yes. 60 British landing cards? Yes. The Department of Agriculture notices there should two be two of those, yes. that's right. Um, soap? Yes. The preparations yes. for the routine flight 522 to Paris continue, and soon the passengers for Paris will join those already in the concourse. Passengers, again, who are they? They vary with the seasons and with the days of the seasons. Here they are below us in the concourse, checking in, making inquiries, doing all the things air passengers do. Something to read for the journey. I have the Times, the London Times, of course, and uh, is that Country Life I see over there? Thank you. Uh, the Tatler, I think, the Illustrated London News, and um, yes, yes, the Queen, I think. That should be enough. I'm flying to London on my way to Harrogate. How long does the flight to London take? Uh, about an hour and 25 minutes, I think. Oh, is that all? Oh, well, in that case, I won't trouble you. I think they supply papers in the aeroplane, anyhow. Speaking love's last words in one of the phone booths. Yes, darling. No, darling. But you see, darling, no. That's not what I meant at all. Hello? Hello, are you still there? 
I meant that I thought, that you thought, I thought... Oh, someone listening to us. You see, what I thought was that you thought I said it was natural. Looks not eavesdrop. Perhaps you'd like a drink. Oh, flying. Well, no more thrill in it for me. I've done too much. Sorry, he's still here. I wouldn't mind having a fiver for every thousand miles I've flown. Soon mounts up, you know. But where have they come from? From anywhere. Everyone flies. Perhaps from a business lunch. Gentlemen, I think that's about everything. I take it you've no objection to my showing these proposals to my partners? No, oh, certainly not. Well, in that case, I'd better be off. Yes, if you've got to pack before you go to the airport. Waiter, will you get a taxi, please? We'll inspect the rough draft, and if they agree, I see no reason why. At one time of the year, almost certainly someone would be going home after some days with the meat. Someone might be coming from last night's triumph at the opera. Some passenger might have been on a coach tour of Ireland or been bidding at Ball's Bridge for a likely animal. 1,900 guineas, 1,900 guineas I'm bid. On my right, 1,950. Against you in front, 1,950 guineas. And left, any advance on 1950. Selling to my right, first time, second time, third time, 1,950 guineas. And where are they going? Anywhere. A pilgrimage to Lourdes, flying from Dublin in an aircraft adapted for invalids. At another time of the year, it could be winter sports. Those ski bindings will break your ankles. They never have yet. But they're old-fashioned. You'll see. Home on a stretcher. And somewhere in this crowd of professional men, artists, singers and sportsmen, there's always the perfectly ordinary person. Excuse me, sir. Would you speak to the microphone? We're preparing a broadcast. I certainly will. My message to the world is beware. Has anyone studied the impact of the solar impact? Have you? No. Does anyone realize what's lying in store for humanity behind the false facade of what the world calls day-to-day existence? The time is coming and the hour is written down and it is directly revealed through my firm, the World Thought Astrological Publishing Company of St. Paul, Minnesota. For further details, send a postcard to that address. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, so kind of you. Please, you ask me to sing again in Dublin. Goodbye. Victor? Yeah? The manager said he'd like you to see this before you left. Oh, thank you. Yeah? So. Hmm. Yeah, you tell the manager, please, I'll write from Paris. Thank you, Doctor. Pleasant journey. Thank you, sir. Thank you. When do we take off? When will it be 20 past? Will I be let sit with the captain? Can I have a Coke, please? Well, can I have a Coke? 
Les voyageurs en direction de Paris, service 522, carte d'embarquement numéro 3. Foxtrot Yankee, St. Brendan is ready. Engines checked, cleaned, fueled, and supplied with all the cabin requirements. The luggage is nearly all in. She's cleared for service. Yes? Foxtrot Yankee, flight 522, clear. Thank you. Uh, Foxtrot Yankee for 522 is cleared. This is passed to the customs lounge and received by the ground hostess. Yes, Jim. Uh, Foxtrot Yankee for cars is cleared. Roger, thank you very much. Could you get me the final on that, please? The final is 48. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, but is it true that quite a few of the French people speak English? Oh, yes, they do in Paris. They do? Yeah. Well, then the tourist really doesn't have too much difficulty. That's good. Especially in the hotels. I mean, that's quite helpful. How about a taxi driver, you? <laughs> you can't explain where you want to go. The passengers go out to board the aircraft. Everyone knows where it's going, of course, but he also knows how he hopes to go. Window seat, outside seat, port or starboard, up in front or near the door. Politeness and inflexible determination carry them along. Meanwhile, the captain and co-pilot are running through the long list of checks. Bottles close. High-pressure cocks close. The fuel trimmers full increase. Technical log checked and signed. The door warning lights out. Forty-eight passengers. Doors closed. Correct logbook, Captain. Oh yeah. That was the hostess's report from the cabin, and the check has resumed. Low pressure pumps, all on. Fuel pressure warning lights, out. The starter master switch, start. Select number four. Number four selected. High pressure cocks, all on. Start four. Flight instruments. They seem to be all right. Altimeters, sets, pressure head heaters, uh, on. Dublin Tower, Echo Fox Yankee, taxi clearance. Echo Fox Yankee, clear taxi, runway 06, you may line up, QNH 1013. Dr. Yankee, roger. Foxtrot Yankee, go ahead. Foxtrot Yankee chalks away at 1723, over. Roger, Yankee. The flight proper is timed from the moment the chocks are removed from the landing wheels, and that was the message you heard just now being received in operations as Foxtrot Yankee taxis to the allotted runway. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. 
Welcome aboard Elindus Vicon Tendenda. We are taking off from Paris in a few minutes. Will you please fasten seatbelts? Thank you. Now Foxtrot Yankee has pointed down the runway and the last check, the pre-takeoff check, is being completed. Seat position. Locked. Hydraulic pressure. Checked. And the oil pressure. Okay. Roger. Takeoff clearance with Dublin Tower now. Dublin Tower at the Foxtrot Yankee. Have you got my clearance, please? Yankee, your ATC turns to Paris, Georgia, advisory 554, 521, 21,500 feet. Foxtrot Yankee, roger, understand, to Paris, play 554, 521, 21.5. I'm now ready for takeoff. Okay, Yankee, you're going to take off with the right turn out on course, it's on the turn 0, 4, 0, 1, 3. Foxtrot Yankee, roger, rolling. Full power, please. Center, Erling Gesek of Foxtrot Yankee is now at 21.5 and checks 52.30 north. Over. Alright, Foxtrot Yankee, understand by 52.30 north at 3.5. Your first contact button over is now on 121.3, the Lundy QNH 1014. Foxtrot Yankee, understand Lundy 1014. Good afternoon. So they go. Climbing still, and soon to be on course for Lundy on the flight to Paris. Out over the city of Dublin, out over the suburbs, and over the mountains that look down on Ireland's first inhabitants, and on the Danes, and the Normans, and Professor Fitzgerald's flying machine, and on the coming of the new state. Out over the mountains that look down on an Ireland that has taken wing, an Ireland linked to the air systems of the world. St. Brendan climbs and leaves the voices behind, the all-pervading voices of any airport, admonishing voices, instructing voices, welcoming voices. As she rises to her allotted height over a sea of white and under the flawless blue of the afternoon sky, her only links with earth are the curt, crackling, coded voices that mean safety, exactitude, control. So they go. 21 years' company experience behind each flight and the world's experience behind this calm and controlled and all-seeing routine of the air. So they go, and so they come. Another flight already occupying the attention of those on the ground. Air Lingus announces the arrival of Flight 353 from Edinburgh. A passenger coach will be leaving for the city in 15 minutes. Air Lingus, careful about safety, about time and about comfort. Careful about the big things and the small. An umbrella has been found at the bookstore. Would the owner kindly claim it at inquiries?
An umbrella has been found at the bookstore. Would the old